This morning, I'm very happy to tell you that something you already know, we have a good number of very capable preachers here at Crosspoint. Today, it's my uh, pleasure to introduce to you one of our pastors, Pastor John Vaux. Uh, came to our church as a college student, felt the call to ministry, uh, went from here to seminary, and is now completing his PhD in New Testament. He's in the worst part, research and eventually writing his dissertation. Uh, but it, the, one of the good things I could tell you, he doesn't preach like the stereotypical scholar. Uh, he engages deeply with scripture, with theology, with the original languages, but you'll soon see he preaches from the heart, from personal experience as things that he has not only known and learned from textbooks, things he has personally learned at the feet of Jesus Christ. Will you help me welcome Pastor John Vo? Thanks, buddy. All right. I'm almost tempted to have come up here and said, please open your Bibles. To... No, I'm not. <laughs> but no, uh, thank you for that, Bruce. Um, <clears throat> well, we're just going to get right into the Word. If you turn with me to Colossians, the book of Colossians, that's where we're going to be this morning. That's where we're going to be. Colossians, if uh, somewhere in the New Testament there, if uh, you can't find it. If you can find Philippians, I always remember this little acronym, right, or Galatians, I should say, go eat popcorn. You see, it's Colossians, right? So, I don't know. That always helped me. I guess it's not helping everybody. But it's somewhere there, all right. <laughs> we'll be in chapter one, so just go ahead and turn there or use your phones or iPads and get there and, and we'll get started. Colossians chapter one. Have you ever had uh, something so crucial in your life, some, something so magnificent and important that it completely changed your life, right? It became the central part of your life or a central piece in your life, and you can't use marriage or kids, all right? So something, I'm looking for something a little extra than that. You know, I have several things in my life that's really been impactful. It's extremely impactful. It's, it's, it's something that I have to do every day. Uh, it's a central piece of my life. And one of these things, of all the list of things that I do, right, is happened about two weeks ago, actually. At the urging of my wife, she uh, told me to get a sleep test done because she suspected that I had sleep apnea. Now, you kind of have to understand my life a little bit to understand the significance of, of this test and, and why she kind of asked me to go do it. You know, uh, it practically... Every day of my life, for as long as I can remember, um, I guess there are some days that were skipped, somewhere between 1 p.m. and 7.30 p.m., I would take a miniature nap. Just, that's what I always did. Okay, I, it ranged anywhere between 30 minutes to two hours. And occasionally, it would hit three. <laughs> and my wife is saying, it's not really a nap anymore when you go beyond the hour mark or so. But that's just how it was. And, and this just kind of happened because I was always constantly tired throughout the day. I mean, I would sit in my chair reading a blog or watching a video, and i just fall asleep. I just, my eyes would close, and there it is, sleeping. It doesn't matter how interesting whatever was on the screen was. I could be watching Game 7 of the NBA Finals with two minutes left, and the game tied, and I would close my eyes and doze off. It's just this is what happened. My wife actually, for the, and I asked her if I can share this, right, so it's okay, right? My wife actually, for the first two years of my life, said, I've just married a lazy man. Because <laughs> I slept so much. She's like, this guy must be lazy. 
But I kept telling her, this is my normal. I hardly felt rested and took naps often. And I said to her, you know, you just, you just can't impose your sleeping habits upon me, right? We're just different people. God created us differently. Let's, let's revel in that, right? <laughs> she accepted my explanation eventually, but never truly believed it, right? And it got worse over the years of our marriage. And finally, about three weeks ago, and so two weeks ago, it, it changed my life. But three weeks ago, she made an appointment for me. She's like, you're getting a sleep test done. I think it's sleep apnea. I'm going to solve your problems one step at a time. <laughs> and she does. And lo and behold... Lo and behold, I have severe sleep apnea, right? On average, I stop breathing about 42 times an hour for about several seconds. That's what they said, at least. Like, if you're, if you're over 30, you're severe. So I'm at 42. Great. I, I totally beat it, right? That's, that's what I'm talking about, right? God, if you're going to beat it, you got to beat it, right? Um, so, and so the solution for me was to use what they call a CPAP machine, which essentially helps me breathe and sleep at night. And let me tell you, let me tell you. I have not taken a nap since, and I feel very rested. Normally, when I wake up, it takes me about 30 to 45 minutes to get out of my fog and, you know, and just kind of get used to the day and have a conversation. Well, the first night, the first night after I used the machine, I woke up, woke up in the morning, came downstairs, and I just started having a conversation with my wife and kids. Started talking, hey, how was your night? Who woke up first? How's it going? What's the plan for the day? My wife's just staring at me, starting to like, wait a minute. In the 10 years of our marriage, we've never had a conversation after you woken up. (laughs) It just didn't happen. She's stunned. Needless to say, this machine changed my life, right? And I use it every night now and for the past two weeks at least, and it's going everywhere with me, right? Going to be at the men's retreat. It's going to be with me at the men's retreat, (laughs) right? It's it's coming with me because it's, it's such a central piece of my life now. Now, while this machine, this great, magnificent, special machine has made such a huge impact in my life, the impact is simply physical. Yeah, I get rested, but that's all that it is. What I want to share with you this morning is someone who is vastly more grand than getting a good night's rest. Someone who is more magnificent, more important, that he should be the very center and priority of your lives above everything else. Nothing in this world ought to match him. What we're going to see this morning is the supremacy of Christ, how he's supreme over everything, and more specifically, how he is supreme over your life. Again, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, and it's going to be in verses 15 to 20 that we're going to be in. And just to kind of give you a little roadmap of where we're going to go, we're going to see three ways in which Christ is supreme. Christ's supremacy over creation, Christ's supremacy over the church, and Christ's supremacy in reconciliation. Let me read our passage for this morning, starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now just a quick brief note in this letter to the Colossians, right? The Apostle Paul is writing this letter. And in the church, 
there was some false teaching going on uh, that was kind of being propagated. And Paul writes this letter to address those false teachers and bring back the focus onto the gospel and onto Jesus. Which is why in the beginning of the letter, right after Paul gives thanks, which he typically does, right, he thanks the church and then he prays for them. Right after that, he opens with this in verse 15 and jumping into the supremacy of Christ. And so the first way we see it, Christ's supremacy over creation. Look at how verse 15 starts off. It's phenomenal. It's it's rich theological statement. He is the image of the invisible God. Invisible God is, is referring to God the Father. Now, here's the thing. No one has seen the Father. In fact, God the Father does not have a physical form. It says in John chapter 4, verse 24, that God is spirit. But this invisible God is revealed and seen clearly in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Notice that it says he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ, while distinct from God the Father, is equated with the Father in his divinity. Jesus Christ is fully God while still being fully man. And it's in Jesus that we most see the Father, which is why it also says in John chapter 14, verse 9, he who has seen me, Jesus referring to himself, has seen the Father. And you can already begin, as we begin to crack open the doors of this passage, the greatness, the awesomeness, the supremacy of our Lord Jesus Christ as he is the image of the invisible God. Now in verse 15 it continues, right? Jesus is describing Jesus. It says that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now this phrase has created some difficulty because it seems to suggest that Jesus was created and was the firstborn or first creation of all creation. But that's not what the verse is saying here. We have to understand culturally in Paul's time that being the firstborn male, right, specifically the firstborn male, came along with it a a rank, so to speak, among the rest of your brothers and sisters. The firstborn male was, in essence, the first in the ranks. And, in fact, some Asian cultures today still have that, right? The firstborn boy is considered to be important, He's going to be the one that takes care of the family when the parents get older. He's the one that will perhaps get the larger inheritance. He will be the next family head after the father gets older and when he passes away. He doesn't even have to be the firstborn boy. I'm sorry, sorry. he doesn't have to be the firstborn child. He just has to be the firstborn boy. He could be the third child born, yet he still has that rank of number one. I'm the second. My brother's older than me. He's the first, and so he gets all that. It's just how it is in our family. And so the ideal of firstborn here in Colossians has the concept of rank. Jesus was never created. He existed eternally with the Father because Jesus is God, one of the personhood of the Trinity. And so what verse 15 is saying is that Jesus ranks number one over all creation. In other words, Jesus is supreme over all creation. Verse 16 provides for us, as we go along, the the reason why we can say this, why we can say Jesus is supreme over all creation. It is because by him, all things were created. In case you didn't know what all things meant, Paul makes that explicitly clear. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things 
We're created through him and for him. And so let's break this down here real easy. From the stars in space down to the materials you use for your clothes, from the visible mountains and trees to the air that we can't see, but we know it's there because we're breathing it. Through Jesus, that was all made. And it's not just the physical realm, but it's the spiritual realm as well. That's what the thrones, dominions, and rulers are refer- and authorities are referring to. Everything was created through Christ. And Paul continues in verse 17 to really cap it off and give this summary verse, right? How, how, how supreme Christ is over creation, right? He is, he is before all things, referring again to how Christ is first in rank, and in him all things hold together. Simply put, the reason why this world doesn't fall apart is because Jesus sustains all of creation. He's first, he's number one in rank, and as supreme creator, as, as the supreme person over creation, he holds creation together. He sustains creation together. If I can get a little nerdy and bring out my math background here, right? I don't know if you ever asked this question, but I have, being a, being a math guy. I've always asked the question, right, you know, as I, and wondered, how is it that math is so practically consistent in real life, right? How, how is it that one plus one is always going to be two? How is it that engineers use calculus and physics to make airplanes that don't fall out of the sky? How is it that we compute such math that we can send a satellite into space, it orbits around there, stays there, and we can use that piece of machinery somehow? The answer is verse 17. The world remains in its logical order. We have gravity, and that's consistent. The mathematical equations work because Christ sustains creation. Nothing fall apart because of him. Suffice it to say, Paul is hammering home in these three verses Christ's supremacy over creation. Now, I'm going to backtrack a little bit to kind of make it very relevant for us. In verse 16, I don't want you to miss the end of it. Look at verse 16. Look at the end of what that verse says. After, you know, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, with thrones and dominions, etc., etc., It says, all things were created through him and for him. For him. All things were created for Christ. All creation was created for the purpose of honoring and glorifying Christ. It's for him. Right? That's the purpose of creation. Everything, everything created. The mountains, the trees, everything was created to bring his name glory to exalt Christ. But let me, I mean, there's so much that we can talk about this, but let me hang your thoughts on just one. We, human beings, were created for Christ, right? We're creation, we're created, and we were created for Christ. The purpose of our existence is for Christ. I mean, let that truth marinate in your mind. Your life's purpose is for Christ. Let me say it this way, the praise due to Christ, the glory that ought to be brought to his name is the sole reason of your existence, nothing else. That is the reason that you sit here this morning. That is the reason why you continue to breathe air. That is the reason why you are still alive. What does that practically look like? Well, if if Christ is the reason for our existence, then we make him the priority of our lives, right? If Christ is our priority, 
then scripture becomes our priority. Obeying scripture becomes our priority. Worshiping him through how scripture calls us to worship him becomes our priority because Christ is to be supreme over our lives. The outpouring of making Christ first in our life really means we make scripture a priority of our lives because the scripture attests to him and lets us know about him. So, sobering moment, we got to ask the question, right? Are you existing the way you were created for? Are you existing for the glory of Christ? Are you living in such a way that every moment of your life points to Christ? That Christ is central in your life? I mean, there's so much to say here, but let me just pr provide two simple topics to think through. Just to think through. As you go home and let this truth marinate in your mind, two simple topics to think through, right? The first topic, if Christ is our priority, it should kind of flesh out in two different ways, right? One is obedience, right? If Christ is our priority and the only way we know Christ and know how to worship him and know what he wants of us is through scripture, that also then leads logically to that we obey what he calls us to obey. Scripture calls us to live for Christ, right? How are we living that out? I mean, uh, just a couple chapters later in chapter 3, Paul makes some specific statements Right? He's telling us to put to death our sins, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. He tells us to put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from our mouth. He tells us to put on compassion, kindness, patience, love, forgiving each other. Very clear things in Scripture that God calls us to live in. And so as we think about just that, just those simple things in chapter 3, right, you got to start asking yourself the question, right, if, if we are placing Christ first, are we ensuring that we live a pure life or do we place our pleasures first? If we are placing Christ first, are we controlling our anger, exhibiting self-control, or do we place pride first and make excuses for why we get angry? Are we placing Christ first by showing kindness and patience with the people that we may not want to show it to? Or do you place your own selfish desires first by being perhaps a little mean or lack the patience? We can, we can go on for the rest of the sermon this way, but suffice it to say the idea that Christ is supreme over creation means that he's supreme over you. And if he's supreme over you, that means he is to be your priority. And if he is to be your priority, scripture is to be your priority. If scripture is your priority, that means you ought to be living the way he has called you to live. The second topic that you can kind of hang your thoughts on is the gospel. What I mean by this is knowing your Savior, Jesus Christ, and continuing to learn more about him is to be the priority of your life. Right? Because you can't know what to live and how to live it, how to worship him, unless you're in it. Unless you, you learn what he says, learn about him, learn everything about him, learn what he's called you to do, learn what he's said. And if I can just take for a moment, just for a moment before we continue, right? And this, is, this has been on my heart for a very long time. It's just, as a former youth pastor and a parent of young kids, I, I just want to for a moment talk to the families here. Is knowing the gospel and loving and obeying Jesus Christ a priority for how you raise your kids? what you point your family to? Do you, talk to? do you talk about Jesus over the dinner table? Do you help guide your kids to live a godly life? Do you model 
for them what Scripture has called you to do? Do you treat church the way God wants you to treat church so that they would treat church like that when they get older? He's our priority. Obeying him, knowing him, and learning about him ought to be our goals. Let's move on in the text. The second way we see the supremacy of Christ is the supremacy over the church. Over the church. Verse 18 reads again, he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now before we actually start talking about the verse, I, I, I want to point out something that that's, I believe to be significant here, right? Paul was talking about creation. Right? He's talking about everything he's created, all the physical world, all the spiritual world. Technically speaking, right, if you talk about the church, that includes the church, all right? But yet, he specifically points it out here. He specifically takes time to talk about the church, which is the body of believers, right? Not a building, but a body of believers. This ought to perk our ears, our minds, and our hearts, right? The fact that Jesus is supreme over all creation is already relevant to us, but he wants to make it even more relevant. He, he went from a general term to a very specific one. I'm talking about the church now. He zooms his lens in to the body of believers, whom by God's grace he's redeemed. We're not talking about general creation anymore. We're talking about a, a specific group of people, the people who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And by implication, by implication, he's talking about Crosspoint here, the local body of believers. And so with that, let's see what Paul says, right? Clearly states that Jesus is the head of the church. In other words, Jesus is the one that has complete authority over the church. By implication then, right, he's the authority in this church. It's not anybody on the staff, not anyone of the pastors. It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He is our authority. We listen to him. And unless you get mistaken that Jesus' authority only matters when it's convenient in the church or when it matches our opinion about what the church should or should not do, make no mistake, Jesus' authority is absolute, absolute in the life of the church. He continues, right, saying that Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. And again, we see that word firstborn. Let's break it down so we can understand it. Now, there is a literal sense that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Right? We just celebrated this, this last weekend, right? He, he was the first one to be resurrected from the dead through the power of God and to be exalted in heaven with the Father. Right? Now, we do see, because you're going to, you know, if you know your Bible stories, right, we do see, yeah, there have been those who have been resurrected, one of them being Lazarus, right, in, in, John, in John chapter 11. But he rose again from the dead to die again. <laughs> Jesus was resurrected and exalted into heaven. No one's, no one's done that except Christ. He was the first one. Okay. And so in this sense, he is the firstborn of the dead, but there's also the sense, as you see in, the, in verse 18, right, he's the beginning. So there's still the idea of rank here. Yes, he is the firstborn from the dead, firstborn from, that, that was resurrected through the power of God, but he's also still supreme in this resurrection from being raised from the dead. Right? And, he's, and all this happens because he, so that he might be preeminent. 
In other words, the resurrection is just another display of the supremacy of Christ. Right? He's, he's supreme over everything. And again, as we, we look at how the passage is structured, the fact that the church is brought up just again tells us that the, in the plan of God, the church is important. The church is important. Being supreme over creation already means he's supreme over the church. But it needs to be detailed out here. Right? It needs to be shown that. And just by way of application to hang some of your thoughts on it, focusing simply on the fact that the church is brought up here, that it is important in the plan of God, that Christ is her head, right? Let's think about church and how that ought to be really the priority for us because church is important to Christ. Don't misunderstand, again, don't misunderstand me. Church isn't some building, right? It's the body of believers. Again, more specifically for our context, it's the local body of believers. So specifically, Jesus has authority over believers, right? And he structures this authority. God has ordained the way he has done this authority is through the local church, in this case, Crosspoint. So being a part of, being a committed to a local body of believers is extremely important because that is how Jesus, through providing spiritual gifts to the body of believers, helps you grow in your faith, helps correct you when you veered off the path, and helps you worship God together as we bow the knee to Christ. Right? The church holds a central place in the plan of God. Right? I mean, you have to think about that, right? You're not going to make a ruler, a king over some land that no one cares about, right? I mean, I guess I could be king of my own dominion, which is basically my office chair of me, and that's it. And no one cares about that, right? I'm, I'm the king of where? Of my office chair. <laughs> Doesn't really matter. But God in his plan has put Jesus as king over and ruler over the church. He is supreme over the church, and that's important. That's important. We ought to realize that. We ought to recognize that. But here's the thing, though, right, as we talk about the local body of believers here. you got to be a part of the body to be a part of the body. What, what do I mean? Let me give an example, right? Let's, let's use, for example, In-N-Out. Love that place, right? If you're from California, you're going to say that's the best burger ever, right? It's just how it is. And if, if we disagree, we're going to lovingly disagree, okay? <laughs> right? But let's just say... Customer walks into in and out you know, you got your managers, you got your employees, right? They work to provide a service, right? making the best burger and french fries, right? And you walk in as a customer and you go, hey, I work here. Right? You tell everybody in the store, hey, I, I'm an employee of in and out And you tell your friends who came along with you, I, I work here, man. Friends are kind of looking at you kind of weird. and Maybe they go to the cashier and they say, hey, do you know this guy? Cashier is going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I see him all the time. He comes, he, he come, eats here all the time, right? And you go, oh, well, okay, great. And the friends go, well, does he work here? Cashier goes, oh, no. No, no, he's just a customer. And then you go as the customer, no, 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 what are you talking about? I work here, okay? I'm an employee of In-N-Out. And then you, so now you're kind of confused because the cashier is like, dude, I've never seen this guy, right? And so you kind of ask the question, well, do you have hours here? No. Oh, okay. Uh, do, do you get paid by in and out No. Uh, so what you're telling me is you're an employee of in and out because you say you're an employee of in and out not because you actually are an employee of in and out Exactly. Now, how many of us would be like, wait, wait a minute, that's, 
That's ridiculous. Here's the thing, though, and all of, I mean, this is all throughout America. This is how we treat the church, right? Come to church to receive a service on Sunday. Maybe you know a few people, know a few families, but that's about it. You're not part of the body. You don't serve with the body. You don't love with the body. Your commitment only goes so far as Sunday, and then outside of that, there's really no commitment. But if Christ is supreme over the church, if he's the priority, right, and the, and the church is important in the plan of God, we got to start asking the question, man, how important is the church to us? I mean, the answer is simple. It should be very important. But you got to ask the reflection question, how important is it to us? How important is the church in our life? How is important the church in, in our family's life, in our kids' life? I get it. Life gets busy. School can get demanding. Work can get demanding. If you got kids, their sport activities can get demanding. I get it. Things fight for our time. Things fight for our attention. But I'm, but I'm suggesting to us this morning, I'm in fact pleading with us this morning that perhaps we've misplaced our priorities. Perhaps we're spending a little bit too much time in things that we shouldn't be spending too much time in. Right? God uses the church, the local body of believers, to accomplish what he's called everyone to do, right? It's through the church. Maybe instead of making our decisions based off of finances or desires or abilities, maybe we need to start making our decisions in life based off the church's mission, the church's vision, or the church's needs. I'm appealing to you today, brothers and sisters, that we got to really keep a central aspect of the local church in our, in our hearts and minds. This is, this is where God uses the body to not only conduct his work, but to help us grow in our faith and love him. Finally, the last way we see Jesus, how Jesus is supreme is his supremacy and reconciliation. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, really, verses 19 and 20 is the basis of why Paul could say what he said in verse 18, right? Jesus is preeminent because for in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In other words, the full glory and majesty of God the Father dwelled in Christ. And this pleased the Father. And as verse 20 continues, right, through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In the death of Jesus Christ, with his shed blood on the cross, Jesus and Jesus alone made it possible to have peace with him and with God the Father. <clears throat> now, throughout Scripture, something interesting to note here, when you see the term reconcile or reconciliation, right, typically, typically, it refers to the fact that sinners need to be made right with God. And, and, the, and the person that we're being made right with is God the Father. Typically, when you see this, the term simply means being made right, right? A, you know, a God in his just and in his righteousness, because we are sinners, he is just to, to condemn us, to punish us, to, to unleash his wrath against sin, okay? But, and so we need to make peace with God. We need to be made right with God. 
We need to reconcile. Okay, that's what that term means there, right? And typically when we see this term, it refers to that, how we need to reconcile with the Father because he's the one that's going to dispense judgment. He's the one that's going to unleash his wrath. But here, it's referring to Christ. We need to be reconciled to Christ. And the reason why this is done is, is, is done on purpose. It's because, again, the only way you can be made right with God, the only way you can have peace with the Father and not face his just wrath against your personal sins is to believe in Jesus and in his death and resurrection. Christ is put on display in, recon- in the reconciliation process because there is no process without his blood. There is no peace without his blood. There is no running away from God's judgment without Christ's blood. And then, of course, his resurrection, as we celebrated last week, and showed that he can provide that peace. He showed his power over sin and death. Right? And again, we begin to just simply crack the surface of how preeminent Christ really is. And we see that in his death and resurrection. We can't do any of it. Nothing in the world can help, help us make peace with the Father for the sins that we've committed. Nothing we can do, zero, zilch, nothing. Only Jesus can bring that peace. And we have to believe in him to receive that. And thus we see the supremacy of Christ in reconciliation. Everything we talked about thus far, Christ's supremacy over creation, Christ's supremacy over the church, none of this really means anything unless you've been reconciled with the Father. None of this really means anything to you unless you know Jesus. It is, in fact, impossible to make Jesus your priority without first knowing Jesus, who you need to make your priority. And that's like me saying, like, hey, you need to make, um, you need to make learning uh, calculus with differential equations as your priority. And those of you who haven't taken math, you're going to be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. You can't make Jesus your priority if you, have, if you don't know who he is. So I if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I'm thrilled that you're here. I'm thrilled that you're here this morning. I'm thrilled that you'll come through the doors. And I'm thrilled because I can now plead with you. Jesus is supreme in reconciliation. He is the one that provides peace. Believe upon him. Believe upon the cross. Believe in his death and resurrection. And I guarantee you, you will receive peace. For those of us who know Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, who know that he's supreme in reconciliation already, right now we gotta, we got to start orienting our life. Well, he's supreme over everything. Let's make him our priority. Let's work together to do that. Right? We need his grace. We need, we, need, we need to pray to him. Right? We can't, in, in many ways, we cannot do it without his grace. And so let's seek him. Let's, let's pray. Let's worship him. And let's Together as a church, as a body of believers, to spur one another, lover, one another to love and good works, to worship God, and to make Him the center of our lives. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful morning. We thank you for this time that we can just worship you through the hearing of your word. And Lord, this, this passage is so powerful. It's, it's, it's so powerful, Lord. And it speaks a lot of truths, and the well is deep with this passage. But we can see 
Lord, just as reading through it and going through it, Lord, that at the end, what it's really pointing to is your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, that he is supreme. He is preeminent. Lord, I pray that we make him preeminent in our lives, that we center our lives on him. Help us, Lord, with your grace. Help us. We can't do this by ourselves. We can't do this without your transformation. Help us grow and help us worship you, learn about you, make decisions based off of what you said in Scripture so that you can be our priority. And Lord, as we continue to worship you in song, Lord, continue to move our hearts and minds. And as we worship you, worship you in, in the giving, Lord, may you receive the giving that we've provided, Lord, uh, something that you've given us that it will honor you and give you all the glory. In Jesus' precious name we pray.